Luke chapter 2 as we return to the Gospel of Luke. And once again, let's bow in a word of prayer to ask God to attend to our time. Father, we are thankful to be here this day. We are thankful that we can open your word, that we can know your mind on everything that you have revealed to us there. And we are grateful that we can actually know you. And so we pray this morning as we study your word that it will impact us as you have seen fit to do so, as you have given it to us through your servants, and as we now, some 2,000 years later, come before you and hear these things, maybe afresh, maybe new, maybe just a reminder to us of things we've looked at in the past, but just the same, impactful upon us as we walk this life before you. So attend to our time for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to focus our attention on Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52, as we think about all that is here for us by way of the birth of Jesus Christ and all the events that took place following that. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll begin to walk through them together. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, says, And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up according to the custom of the feast. As they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among the relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. It came about that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, I don't know how many times you have read through that particular portion of Scripture. I have read through it numerous times. And this is a fascinating passage of Scripture. Maybe you haven't ever thought about it in that way, but it is a fascinating passion or portion of Scripture in spite of the fact that it doesn't usually get a whole lot of attention. I don't know how many times in my 54 years of being in the church, I've ever heard messages preached out of Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52. 
You just don't hear it talked about a lot. But I want us to think through it this morning as we ponder the boy who is God. The boy who is God. I don't know about you, but I am intrigued anytime I see a child prodigy. Anytime I see some young child who seems to have some kind of intellect that is well beyond their years, well beyond anything that maybe their peers have. Some kind of innate ability from a very young age to do things and to think through things and problems and solve complicated equations and complicated thought processes of some scientific or maybe even a musical piece that they have either written themselves or can play themselves that normally takes others in whatever particular field it is, years to learn and years to master, and yet somehow they are able to do it without any thought at all. Some of these prodigies have been able to master multiple languages at extremely young ages, several languages beyond just the one they normally speak. Others have written complex musical pieces like Mozart and Beethoven and those at very young ages were able to do that. They've been able to play instruments that normally take advanced dexterity in their hands and limbs to be able to do that. Still others have solved complex math problems and most even have earned advanced degrees in some kind of educational system way before any of their peers. I'm always fascinated to read about them and, and, and almost wonder sometimes at their abilities to do those kinds of things. And I think, I don't think a parent in this room or any parent who's ever had children would like their children to be able to be intellectually advanced in some kind of way. Yet, if all of the intellectual acumen could be gathered together and placed into the life of one person, all of the intellect of all the prodigy children and all the intellect of all the geniuses throughout the world and all of this high-end thinking, if, if that could actually happen, that person would have a monumental intellect, a mind beyond anybody else's mind, and yet they would still fall drastically short of the intellect and wisdom of Jesus Christ. They wouldn't even come close. There would be no measurement scale that could even register them on the scale of wisdom and intellect compared to Jesus Christ. No one has ever been wiser. No one has ever had a greater intellect than Jesus Christ. No one has ever known more than the boy who is God. And we remember all that Luke has told us about. And he has said to us that he has written all of this that we might know the exact truth. You remember he's writing to his friend Theophilus, his acquaintance, and that he might know the exact truth about all that he has been taught. All of us have been taught much about Jesus. All of us, particularly here in the Western culture of America, have heard about Jesus. Even if you don't believe upon Jesus, you have heard about Jesus. We have heard stories. 
And many of us wonder about the details of those stories. Sometimes we wonder about the complete accuracy of all that we have been taught concerning Jesus Christ. That's not necessarily a bad thing to do. We are, as Christians, even to take every thought captive to the Word of God. So when we hear things, there is to be this natural instinct within us as Christians to have somewhat of a rightful skepticism about it, to check it out, to to take it to the Word of God and filter it through the Word of God so that we can know the exact truth. We always need to be asking questions. And this portion of Scripture is no exception for us. It's no exception as Luke unfolds all that we know of the childhood of Jesus Christ. This is all we know. God, by way of His wisdom and by way of His intention, chose to not tell us much about the childhood of His Son, the childhood of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity and His growing up years from childhood. We don't know a lot, but we have some here. And we are reminded by Luke, as he ends in verse 40 with these words, and the child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Beloved, that is all we know about the adolescent years of Jesus Christ. That's all the Bible tells us. He continued to grow and he continued to become strong not only in his physical ability as all humans grow in their natural growth years, they grow and their muscles get stronger, their bones get stronger, they are physically growing. But notice it says also he was increasing in wisdom and in the grace that is the favor of God. It was upon him. Now that clearly indicates to us, by way of Luke telling us these things, that this one that he is talking about is fully God, and yet he is also fully human. He is fully human. That's why Luke writes it the way he writes it, and the child continued to grow and to become strong. Some who think about Jesus Christ don't think about it on that level when they talk about his childhood. They don't think about him being a full human being. There is all kinds of aberrations about Jesus Christ and the incarnation and whether he is fully human or not. Well, here we get the indication that he, as a child, grew just like you and I did. He, being fully human, grew up just like we grew He gained physical strength over time. He increased in wisdom. Wisdom being the skillful living out of the understanding of things that he knew through his obedience in his humanity. And he grew in that under the tutelage of his human parents, Mary and Joseph. All of those are implications that we can draw from verse 40. And then right there in the white spaces in your Bible between verse 40 and verse 41, 12 years of time passes. 12 years of time. And then 
while we're not going to get there yet today, but from verse 52 all the way to chapter 3, verse 21, another 18 years passes in the life of Jesus Christ. So there is 30 years of time passing from chapter 2, verse 7, the birth of Jesus, to chapter 3, verse 21. And there isn't a whole lot said. There's a whole lot of information about Jesus in that. In fact, a large portion of it is John the Baptist and his ministry beginning in chapter 3 to verse 1 to verse 20. So all of chapter 3 up to verse 21 is John the Baptist. And so really all we have about the childhood of Jesus Christ is right here, right here in this passage. And so Luke includes this one incident that tells us about the boy who is God. And Luke begins by giving us the circumstances of this event. And then he throws in there by God's revelation to him this declaration by the boy, this declaration by Jesus Christ that reveals to us and helps us understand that Jesus knew exactly who he was. And we'll just walk our way through this, and we'll glean from it as we go. Notice verses 41 and 42. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up according to the custom of the feast. Now Luke tells us that what facilitated some of his growth in wisdom was that his parents were devout people. We knew that previously in the birth of him and the previous nature of his birth because Mary was a believer upon what the angel revealed to her. And of course, Joseph was a righteous man as well, not wanting to put her away. They were devout even at their young age. And so Jesus, growing up in their home, grows up in the reality that his parents are devout people seeing this being lived out before them, as Luke writes it here, they used to go every year at the feast of the Passover to Jerusalem. Very specific language. You say, why is that important? Because the Old Testament law declared that there were three specific times in particular in which the in the Jewish calendar, every male ages 13 and above, it was mandatory that they go to the feast. Three particular feasts. What were those times? It was the Feast of Passover. Also, the Feast of Passover was linked with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was like a a follow-on, as we will even mention here. So the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or you might read it in Scripture sometimes, the Feast of Booths. That's booths. That's the same thing, tabernacles and booths. Exodus 23, verses 14 to 17, Deuteronomy chapter 16 speak to that very issue. Those were the three mandatory times when any male ages 13 or above had to be in attendance at the feasts. And there was no mandatory attendance, at least required by the law, for women. However, 
those who were devout would attend, as you see here, Mary is attending. So the feast, the Passover feast, became then every year this this annual trek from Nazareth to Jerusalem with the family. It was a, a family outing, if you will, and it was not an inexpensive venture for them, being people from the north because of the distance and everything else. So there was this mandatory attendance for at least Joseph, or and therefore any other man from the north who was a Jew who had to be at the feast, and he brought his family with him every year. Every year. So they would travel with others from the region of Galilee down to Jerusalem. In fact, you notice... Luke tells us that it was not a small group of people that came down. Notice in verse 44, even when they were returning, it says, but they supposed him to be in the caravan. The caravan. That's not a Dodge caravan. That's a larger group of people. It is a a large group. Several families together. Several families together. It was a large number of people. Why would they do that? Because it provided both safety as they traveled, because it wasn't the the most unsafe trip. They had to go around Samaria because of the Jewish issue with the Samaritans and how the half they were the half Jews and the regular Jews just didn't have relations with the Samaritans, so they would always go around that land. So it was a, a dangerous trip, and it also provided companionship for the other families. It provided like we do, we, even here in our church, right? We might have our children, and yet there are other families that keep an eye out for our children as well as you keep your eye out for others' children within the caravan, within the group. And so it provided both safety and that companionship as they traveled from Nazareth down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem, as it really is stated in Scripture, because Jerusalem was always higher in elevation than any other place. And so really from Nazareth, you'd travel up, and it was nearly an 80-mile trip. 80 miles, approximately. They didn't have cars. They didn't go out and say, okay, everybody pile in this. We'll get there in about you know an hour and a half if we drive on the highway. No, they didn't do that. It would have taken about four days for them to walk with the caravan that amount of distance since they had that large group. And in that group were families. And in those families, there were all ages of people. You couldn't walk your youngest child 20 miles in one day. So it was long. Many times it was dangerous. And they did it, you notice, every year. Every year. At the feast, they would go. It's refreshingly fascinating, isn't it? Just to read that. You read that verse and you kind of think, oh, that's just a a movement of this flow of the narrative. And truly it is that. But it says some things to us about Mary and Joseph and their devotion to God. It's refreshing as we read that, as we think about the first century church and the new Christians who believed upon Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 4 and verse 42. The Christians were devoted to one another. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread together and to prayer and to fellowship. 
That's the, that's the common reality of a believer in Jesus Christ. They aren't one that just goes whenever they feel like it. They are devoted to one another. This is the family of God. And it's refreshing here to think of these Old Testament believers. These are Old Testament people who believed in God and it showed in how they lived. They were devoted to the things of God. Devoted to the things of God. So it was it was in the eyes, it was in the ears of this young boy, Jesus, as he watched his parents do this year after year after year after year. Now Luke doesn't tell us if this is the first time that Jesus went on the trip. We don't know that, at least from this passage, we can surmise that it was not, because the text says that Jesus here is 12. You notice verse 42, when he became 12. That, sometimes that, that kind of phraseology might, might intimate to us that, that now he went, when he became 12, he went up with them. But this is, this is being emphasized for us here, because in a short time, Jesus would be 13. In a short time, we don't know how many months before he would turn 13, but we know in a short time he would be 13. And that is very important because you remember it was required of all males once they turned 13. It was mandatory for them to go. Because at 13 years old, a Jewish boy would officially be considered by the rabbis what they called a son of the commandment. A son of the commandment. What does that mean? Well, that means that he would be considered a full member of the synagogue. He would be like any other adult male who was a Jew, a full member of the synagogue because he is now 13. He's considered to be a man. Think about that, parents, for a moment. How many of us would like to consider our 13-year-olds a man? That's a frightening thought, isn't it? Some of us think about our 18-year-olds and go, wait a minute, I need another five or six years with that knucklehead. 13 in a Jewish mind in the early years, even today, the Jews have what they call a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah considering that young boy, in one sense, an adult, a person, a son of the commandment. And so Jewish fathers would begin to have their growing sons involved in the Passover feast ceremonies. They would have them involved in all of the required ceremonies in in order to show them all that took place, all that went on. Because once they turned 13, they would be a son of the commandment. Soon they would be required themselves to attend. Soon they would be required to follow all that was required of them by way of the sacrifices and worship. They would be held accountable, at least by way of the Jewish religious nation and by God's law, before God as standing on their own. And so here is Mary and Joseph, devout believers in God, bringing their family to the Passover feast. And here is Jesus, almost a full son of the commandment, 
He's brought along so that he can observe, so that he can learn all that he could about what all of this meant. You notice at about 3 p.m., the sacrificial in the Passover feast, at about 3 p.m., the, the sacrificial lamb would, the, the sacrifices would begin. No doubt Joseph would have taken Jesus with him. Son, we need to go. They go into the temple area, the place where women could not go, so that he could watch as the lambs are slaughtered. This is the annual feast of the Passover. There's no small amount of people there. The, the place is flooded with people. And all of the priests, every, every cohort of priests in the 24 cohorts of priests would have been on hand for the occasion. So many people offering a lamb of the, for their own families for the Passover feast that the priest is catching the blood from the from the throats of the animals that are being killed so in the altar in the basin so he can throw it at the base of the altar you read some of the historians and they estimate that upwards of 250,000 lambs would have been slaughtered on an annual Passover celebration 250,000 now you think about that one for each family which indicates that there's probably three or four times that amount of people there. And then after the lamb is slaughtered, Joseph would have taken the lamb. After making the sacrifice, the family takes the lamb. It's wrapped in its own hide, and he would have taken the lamb and Jesus in tow with him, and they would have went to wherever it is they were staying. They might have been staying in the old city of Jerusalem. They might have been staying on the outskirts, as many of the those who had come from distant places would have done, and they would have celebrated the Passover meal together as they recounted the deliverance of God for Israel from Egypt's captivity. Verse 43 says to us, and as they were returning, now we see that the feast has ended in that little white space after the end of verse 42, between feast and the word and, there's that six or seven days that have gone on because it says, and as they were turning after spending the full number of days. The full number of days. Passover was a one-day event, but when it says the full number of days, that just indicates to us that they stayed for the event that followed, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the week that followed. So for Mary and Joseph and the family, this was at least at minimum a two-week trip. Four days down, a week there, four days back. This was no small adventure. And it says they spent the full number of days. The entire caravan of people from the north stayed through the week in order to carry out even the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You didn't have to do that. That wasn't a required feast. You could have left after the Passover, and many people probably did. They, they went for the Passover, but they couldn't stay. Maybe it was a longer journey. For whatever reason, they left after the Passover day. They didn't stay for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But according to Luke here, prior to their returning, they spent the full number of days there. They would have spent the whole week 
Jesus watching, Jesus seeing this, Jesus spending time with the believers. Jesus would have had his mind filled with all that was going on. And Luke tells us that Jesus the boy, so he is, you notice that, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus, he's a boy, not 13 yet, he stays behind. Stayed behind in Jerusalem. You don't have to get too technical about what stayed behind means in the original language. It means he didn't go with them. He stayed behind. Mary and Joseph had no idea that Jesus wasn't with them. The next sentence begins there in verse 43, and his parents were unaware of it. They were unaware of it. It could have been because that The group was so large, they thought he was involved with maybe some of the relatives that traveled with him. Maybe he was doing what 12-year-olds do. He's out just playing with the other kids and doing the things that kids do. They're unaware that that Jesus had stayed behind. Nobody else really is aware of that. It doesn't even indicate any of that here, but we can surmise that. that Nobody else even knew. They thought probably Jesus is in the group. Who could really blame Jesus for staying behind, right? This was Jesus. He's the perfect child. Who could blame his parents for not being aware of it? Obviously, Jesus wouldn't do anything that would cause us to have any consternation. He's the perfect child. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because just that thought, just that statement that I just made has caused many evangelicals in the past to begin to to speculate about the character of Jesus in doing that. And Luke says, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And then right after it, he says, and his parents were unaware of it. Our minds begin to wonder sometimes. And many evangelicals over the years have wondered and asked, did Jesus as a boy sin? against his parents? Did he sin against them by making this choice to stay behind? By not informing them at least to say, hey, listen, you guys go ahead. I'll catch up in a day or so, but I'm going to stay here and talk to the priests. Well, incredibly, over the centuries, some have attempted to say yes to the question. Some have attempted to actually impugn the very character of God incarnate in his childhood because of this very statement. And here's how the argument goes. Well, Jesus certainly must have known that the group was leaving. He certainly must have known that. He wasn't a stupid kid. He wasn't ignorant of the fact. Surely he knew But being so caught up with all that he had seen, with all that he had learned, he just couldn't resist staying. And so he sinfully, they say, chose to stay behind and thereby disobey his earthly parents. That's how the argument goes. Well, let's just say this at the outset. If that is true... If that scenario is true, then Jesus was disobedient. And if he was willfully disobedient, then he did sin. And if he did sin, then we have no Savior. 
Let's just all fold this book up called the Bible that talks about salvation, label it for what its claims are to be as jokes because it's really not true. We have no Savior. Let's go about living life. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow it's over. But we would disagree with that conclusion, wouldn't we? And for good reason. For good reason. First of all, the Bible declares Jesus was sinless. So if He's sinless, how could He be sinful all at the same time? In fact, He would ask the Pharisees later in His ministry, which one of you convicts me of sin? Notice he didn't say, which one of you accuses me of sin? That was happening all the time. People were accusing Jesus of all kinds of sins, including the Pharisees. He didn't say, which one of you accuses me of sin? He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, can you show me guilty of any sin anywhere in my life, in the history of my life? Can you actually pin Sin upon me by my very action? Jesus will say, I always do that which is pleasing to my Father. I always do that which is pleasing to my Father. Interestingly enough, He will make that kind of declaration even as a child here in verse 49. I always do that which is according to my Father's will. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was, quote, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. That didn't start at a specific age. That was from his birth. 1 Peter 2 tells us that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. I would even say and argue, in fact, that the entire Bible rests on the fact of the sinless Jesus Christ. If Jesus has sinned in any kind of way, then we have no scriptures. So to say that Jesus sinned by purposefully staying behind contradicts the truth of the scriptures, which contradicts the very reality of God's words, because this is God's word, which in fact, to say that Jesus sinned is to promote heresy. To promote heresy. So how then is this to be understood? How is this to be understood that he stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents were unaware of it? Well, I believe it's to be understood through the fact that Jesus becoming fully aware of who he is. Jesus is fully aware of who He is. In other words, when we think of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, when we think about the second person of the Trinity becoming an, a man, a la Philippians chapter 2, emptying Himself, taking on the form of a man, being found in the likeness of men, as Paul says in Philippians 2, we can never forget that Jesus, while being fully God, is fully human. 
We cannot forget that. We cannot separate that. The reality of the kenosis, the divine nature and the human nature in one person, we cannot fathom that, yet we cannot set it aside. We can set aside and think about the reality that Jesus set aside the independent use of his divine attributes when he became a man as he emptied himself. But we cannot forget his humanity. And so Jesus, in his humanity, learned in the same way we learn. As the text tells us, he grew and increased in wisdom, as it will say in verse 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom. He kept increasing. Both of those verses are emphasizing the humanity of Jesus Christ. He grew in understanding and wisdom as he grew in stature and strength. And so he was learning about faith and he was learning about relationships and he was learning about the most important relationship in his existence and that is the relationship with his father in heaven. And so he would have been able to to unknowingly in his humanity unknowingly bring distress upon his parents, yet in a sinless way. In fact, this human unknowingness, I think, seems to be implied in his statement about his knowing who he is. In verse 49, notice what he says. Why is it that you were looking for me? He knows exactly who he is, so he's asking them, wait a minute, I'm not doing this in order to to sin against you. I'm wondering why you don't know this. Why you don't get it. Why you don't understand that. What am I saying? I'm simply saying that obeying, uh, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm obeying my Father. I'm not disobeying my parents. In fact, I'm obeying my Father. So what looks like human disobedience is actually divine obedience. Exercised through his humanity. And in that, there is no sin. And so we can be sure that Jesus was sinless in all of this. Sinless even in his human mind as it is consumed with what and who he is. He is the boy who is God. So what happens? What happens? Well, his parents are unaware of it. They suppose him to be in the caravan, verse 44 says, and they go a day's journey travel, right? They go a whole day's journey outside of Jerusalem, and they begin looking for him among the relatives. They're saying, oh, it must be getting dark out. We're, we're going to camp here for the night. Where's Jesus at, by the way? We haven't seen him all day. wonder what he's doing. So they begin to ask relatives and acquaintances, and when they don't find him, what do they do? They return to Jerusalem, Another day's journey back to Jerusalem. Well, we don't know where he's at. He's not in the group. We better go back to Jerusalem and find out what happened to him. They're looking for him. And verse 46 and 47 says, And it came about after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. 
And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So think about that as a parent. Jesus is out of sight for three days. Here is your son. Yes, he's about to become the full-fledged son of the commandment. He's about to be declared a, 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 a full-fledged uh, adult, if you will. But still, you're concerned about him. And there, three days he's been gone. Mary and Joseph being unaware are, are missing him. They journey a day away. They journey a day back. And they spend a whole day, the third day, searching for him in the city. Everybody shocked. Certainly Mary and Joseph are relieved. He's in the temple. He's sitting with the teachers of the day. He's listening to them. He's asking them questions, no doubt formulating conclusions about them as he hears their speaking. No doubt this this event in his own mind, in his own heart, as he grew in wisdom and, and stature, and, and as he grew in the favor of God, that this event would probably come back to his mind as he knows what they said and, and makes conclusions as to their spiritual lives and their leadership of Israel, because when he becomes another 18 years down the road and he begins his ministry, he begins to go forthright right to the leaders of Israel and begin to question their understanding of the truth. He's formulating this, and he's addressing them, and everybody is shocked at his understanding and his answers. I kept reading this and kept reading this and thinking about it, and what is astonishing to me as I read this is to remember that this is God in human flesh. This is God. Sometimes we read over that, and we just, we just are so impressed tied to our humanity that we can't think about outside of that and think about the divine reality of what's happening here. This is God in human flesh. This is the boy who is God sitting at the feet of those whom he created. And he's learning things from what they are saying. And through him and through his own inquiry into their answers, he is giving answers himself. Should not shock us when verse 47 says, and all who heard him were amazed. It shouldn't, that shouldn't shock us at all. This is a child with an intellect that cannot be compared. In fact, the word means that they were all taken aback by the things that he was asking and answering. They were dumbfounded. Their jaws were on the floor. Who is, they were like, in a grander way, like me when I see a prodigy child. I just kind of sit there with my mouth open, shocked and amazed. At such a young age, here he is. He had gained in his humanness an unmatched understanding of the truth. Jesus, sinless, intelligent, and well-studied in the Scriptures as a boy. That amazed them all. Any wonder, later in his ministry, Jesus will say, You have heard it said, but I say to you. 
No one understood the scriptures like Jesus understood them. Why? He authored them. And verse 48 says, and when they saw him, who? Who's the they? Mary and Joseph. They've been looking for him. They went back to Jerusalem. They've traveled now two days out, a whole day searching for him. When they found him, when they saw him, they were astonished. They were astonished that the three days had gone by and they could find him. And they're astonished that Jesus is doing what he's doing and he's asking what he's asking, just like all who were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And his mother says to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Mary responds like how any mother would respond when she finds her child. Your father and I have been searching for you. Don't you know? Literally, literally, the text says, we have been in great pain searching for you. Almost reminds me of Luke chapter 11, or John chapter 11, when Jesus is told about the death of Lazarus. John tells us in that text that Jesus had heard about the death of Lazarus and he waited two more days because he loved them. Seems rather shocking to us, doesn't it? When you hear your friend died, don't you run right away? Well, not sometimes. Jesus waited two days and then he gets there and Mary says to him, well, if you would have come, he would have been alive. If you would have come, you could have done something. Jesus, we were anxious for you to come here, but, but you didn't come. If you'd have come, certainly Lazarus would be alive today. Jesus says, Mary, don't you know He would rise again if you you would see the glory of God. Didn't I tell you that? I, I know, I, I know he's gonna rise again, but 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 that's not good enough for me. This is like Mary and Joseph here, anxious. We've been in great pain searching for you, Jesus. Don't you know that? All of that, all of that from verse 41 all the way here to verse 48, all of that precipitates Jesus' response in this text, which is the apex of this entire section of Scripture. Jesus responds to Mary's anxious and earthly inquiry. By the way, this is the earliest recorded words of Jesus Christ. These are the earliest recorded words we have in the scriptures of Jesus. Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Both inquisitive and explanatory. inquisitive why is it that you're looking for me that doesn't make sense to me mom why were you following after me why don't you know this you should know this i mean after all we sit here today and go mary you should know that i mean after all the angel spoke to you 
you know who this child is? Maybe 12 years of fog has kind of calloused over some of that memory. Joseph, you know who this is. The angel told you to go to Egypt. The angel told you, don't worry about Mary, it's of the Holy Spirit. The angels told you, Gabriel has said to you who this is. None of this should be a shock to you. Mary, she had asserted that in some way he had treated them in a sinful way. Why did you treat us like this? Why, why is it that, uh, that you've been treating us this way? And Jesus, the boy, gently, cautiously rebukes his mother by saying, why are you looking for me? Don't you know that I notice must be, I had to be in my father's house? Have you forgotten my birth? Have you forgotten what happened then? Have you forgotten how it is that you became pregnant in the first place with me? Have you forgotten the overshadowing of the Almighty upon you? Surely you knew that I needed to be in my Father's house. No sin here. Only love. Only love. Jesus' words, just a gentle reminder that His actual Father is God the Father. Don't you know, Mom, I need to be obeying God rather than men? Don't you know I need to be doing the will of the Father more than the will of men? Jesus stood in a unique relationship with God, a relationship that no other human has ever had or who would ever have. And so here's Jesus, just months before becoming the son of the commandment. Just days, maybe, maybe months from being considered an adult in the Jewish mindset. That point in time, in the, in the growing up years of an adolescent Jewish boy, when, when he would be fully accountable to the law before God, and Jesus fully understands that he has a unique relationship with God the Father. Jesus, as a boy, knew that he was the Son of God. He knew that he was the boy who was God. Why are you looking for me? His understanding of this fact was the central tenant to his entire earthly ministry. Is it not? His understanding of who he is in relationship to the Father? Jesus would say in John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one. I am one with the Father. Now, think about it. Don't you find it just like God? Just like God. I mean, think about our Heavenly Father, God the Father. It's just like God to show us 
that the first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible, these are the first recorded words of the incarnate Son of God in Scripture, the very first words, it's just like God the Father, that these words would be Jesus acknowledging that He is the Son of God. You would say, oh, who is Jesus? Well, He's not God. Really? First recorded words he ever said was, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? These words, by the way, are spoken in the temple. That's where they found him. In the temple, before all of the priests who were there that day, they hear him say it right there. When they hear him say it in John 10 in his ministry, what do they do? They pick up stones and want to kill him. What's the point? What's the point? Simply this. Jesus is God's Son. God is His Father. Jesus is God. I don't think anything can be more profound than that. This is the boy who is God. And Jesus knew who he was. He knew who he was. And that revelation of who he is would be revealed to the whole world 18 years later. Some people say, I don't, I don't understand how all that works. I don't understand how all that works. Jesus, I don't understand how He could be fully human and yet fully God. I I don't understand that. And if I don't understand it, I certainly am not going to believe it. Not going to believe it until my understanding's cleared up. Well, I would just simply say this. Don't let a lack of understanding keep you from believing. Because even Mary and Joseph didn't understand. But verse 50 says, and they, that's Mary and Joseph, did not understand the statement which he had made to them. These are his earthly parents. They hung out with him all the time. They didn't get it. They didn't know how to tie all that together. They didn't know what all that meant. They didn't didn't fully grasp at all the profoundness, all that he was saying. But Jesus knew And in spite of that fact, what did he do? In spite of the fact that Jesus knows God is my Father, I must do what he says, what did Jesus do? Notice verse 51, and he went down with them. He came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. By the way, the word things there in that verse at the end, she treasured these things. That's the, that's the word for word. Oh gosh, she, she treasured the words in her heart. What did Jesus do? He displayed human obedience, even to confused parents. They don't get it. Doesn't matter. He's honoring those whom God has placed them under. The original text says. When it says he went down with them and he continued in subjection, literally he was obeying them. 
The idea is he kept obeying them. He kept obeying. You want to know what Jesus did between 12 and 30? You want to know what he did between the time he was 12 and the time his ministry started? Here it is. He lived and worked and honored his earthly father and mother. That's what he did. He fulfilled the law. Why did he do that? Why? Because he was the son of God? What do you mean? I mean that because he knew who he was. Because he knew who he was. Because he knew the relationship with God. He could and he would faithfully obey his parents as he obeyed his heavenly father. Same reason we obey, right? We do what we do because we know our heavenly father. We obey God because we know our Heavenly Father. We submit to even human authority at times because we know our Heavenly Father. God the Father used that to increase Him in wisdom and in stature. Verse 52 says, and in favor with God and men. He grew wiser for it. He grew physically in it. He was graced in his relationship with God, which graced him in his relationship with his fellow man. So what do we learn? What do we learn from this? First, Jesus is sinless. Jesus is sinless. Paul was right. Peter was right. Writers of Scripture are right. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. No one can rightly accuse him of sin. They cannot rightly accuse him. Why? Because they cannot rightly convict him of sin. He was sinless. We also learn, secondly, that his obedience is both the catalyst and the example for our obedience. His obedience both to the Father as well as His subjection to His earthly parents. We obey, we submit on a human level as long as that submission is in line with our Father who is in heaven, is it not? What they said in the first century church, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, where men is telling us to sin against God, we must obey God. When, when there's no sin involved in that action, we follow what the Father said and obey those whom He has placed in authority over us. That's the principle. So Jesus is sinless. His obedience is the example as well as the catalyst for our own obedience. And third, lack of full comprehension of all that the Bible means by what it says should never discourage us as believers. Come up to passages like this and you and you hit the wall. You face the reality that your mind cannot comprehend all that's going on here. It's hard for us to tie all those knots together. Everything that God tells us cannot be tied in a nice little neat little box with nice little decorations around the side and a nice bow on top and we put it on the shelf of our theological principles and we go, yeah, I got all that right. Listen, we cannot do that. We cannot get discouraged by that. All that ought to do is drive us to a greater worship as we treasure all of God's words in our heart. We go to the wall 
And when we hit that wall, we worship. We worship God for who He is. And we say, we know you are not like us. I think that's what Mary was treasuring. She was treasuring all of that in her heart. Because she had reached that place where she didn't understand it all. But she knew it was true. She walked according to it. And Joseph walked according to it. Boy, who is God? Let's pray. Father, I trust we've been encouraged this glimpse of your childhood. The incarnation is such a mystery to us, a wonder beyond wonders. And yet, in that unfathomable reality of you becoming man, we understand that there is redemption. Redemption in the reality that you gave your life, a sinless life for a sinner like us, the chief of sinners, as Paul said. And that without that, we have no hope. That had you never come, we would still be in our condition lost and worthy of the wrath that was poured out upon him. Oh, Lord, thank you for this glimpse, this snippet, really, into the reality of his understanding. Even as a young boy, the reality of who he was, and that he would walk faithfully knowing that he came to die. Lord, may his example be what is set before our eyes, as the writer of Hebrews says, fix our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one we are to look to, follow, believe. May our lives be enriched because of it. May Your Gospel go forth in our lives with it. May sin be confronted in us because of it. May we embrace the conviction that comes into our life because we see Christ, we see our life in comparison with Him, and we know we fall so short. May we forever be thankful in our hearts, thankful in all things, because He is our Savior. You have rescued us, given us life in Him. So may that be our hope and joy, the desire driving our hearts in submission to Him in every way. So thank you for this testimony from Luke to us. We'll praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.